0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. have your Bibles as you open with me. The first Kings chapter 19, so some of the cleaner pages of the Old Testament towards the front of your Bible. We're doing a series called Prophets and Kings. The prophets were outside the city oftentimes calling the people within the city to repentance, And uh, sometimes they interfaced with kings, sometimes not. We've taken a look at uh, Moses, then Saul, then David, then Solomon. And now we look at Elijah and Ahab. I don't know if you guys missed what happened up here. I accidentally uh, hit one of the trays and knocked some bread all over the place and reminded me, you know, there are all kind of weird things that happen in church when you're up here and you get to see a lot of folks. And I got an email, I don't know, about uh, six months, maybe a year ago, and it was a new family who had visited TBC, and uh, they came from a background where everybody came forward to get communion. And the trays started coming down, and the little boy turns to Dad, I'm going to like this church, Dad. They pass out snacks in the middle of the service. <laughs> so you never know what's gone through somebody's mind when you are doing that. First Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. Now Ahab said, told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. What had happened is in the previous chapter, Elijah had uh, gone up against Baal and over 450 prophets of Baal were killed by Elijah and his allies. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah and said, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Elijah, I'm coming after you. And may the gods kill me if I don't kill you first. So Elijah did what? Look at verse 3. So Elijah was afraid, and he arose, and he ran for his life. Father, as we look at Elijah, after significant spiritual victory, he's a man filled with fear and on the run. Father, there are times, too, when our lives are just like that. When we see that you are greater than everyone and anything else, but we run in fear. So we pray this morning that you touch us in deep places in Jesus' name. Amen. Fear. Elijah was afraid after great spiritual success covered with fear. We're all afraid at times. I, I read this uh, this uh, true account of something that happened out of DFW just recently. Uh, an American Airlines flight was taken off, American Airlines flight 293, which was headed nonstop to Los Angeles. And after the, the pilot came on, said, ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking? Welcome to flight 293, nonstop DFW to Los Angeles. The weather ahead is good. Therefore, we should have a smooth and uneventful flight. And he talked about the seatbelt. And then he said, now sit back and relax. And the next thing they all heard was, oh, no. No, from the captain and then it went silent and then a few minutes later he came back on the intercom he said ladies and gentlemen I'm so sorry if I scared you earlier but while I was talking the flight attendant brought me a cup of coffee spilled the hot coffee on my lap you should see the front of my pants passenger in the coach stood up and shouted that's nothing you should see the back of mine <laughs> I would imagine that's the case wouldn't you That's Elijah. Ahab was known as the most evil king who ruled over Israel. Elijah the prophet was sent by God to confront Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel, and God prevailed through Elijah. But after an amazing display of God's power over Baal and Ahab, we find Elijah discouraged, depressed, disillusioned, and fearful because of one woman. And we find the king 's wife is after Elijah, and after elijah 's had this great success where over four hundred prophets are actually killed, we find him scared to death and I think the the lesson for us and this is i 'll say it on the front end it will Unpack it. If you've ever experienced these emotions of being discouraged, depressed, disillusioned, even fearful after a spiritually significant event in your life, it may be gone to a conference, gone to retreat, leading some type of study, or having some successful ministry, then you can relate to Elijah. But here's what I want to tell you. You have a God who cares for you even during those times. If you have failed God miserably, God does not turn his back on you. If you run from God and you begin to throw your hands up in despair and say, God, I can't go on anymore, you have a God who cares for you. We've all been there at some point in time. It's a very familiar story. We'll take a look at it as we look at the strength of our God and the greatness of our God. It all begins with our introduction to this evil king. Actually, he's found in chapter 16. So backtrack a couple of chapters to chapter 16. Ahab is an evil king. I'll remind you that after Solomon's death, Ahijah the prophet had said, Solomon, after you die, the kingdom will be divided. I promised your father David that you could rule, but Ahijah Ahijah told Solomon, after you die, Israel is going to be split. And there was a civil war within Israel, much like our country experienced, where the north divided against the south, and what we find is that the north became Israel and the south became Judah. And so there's a split within the nation of Israel. The seventh king in the northern kingdom known as Israel was a guy named Ahab. Ahab. Ahab's name in Hebrew means bad news. I mean, actually it doesn't, but that's what he is. I mean, he is bad news. By the way, if you ever wanted inspiration for term limits, study Ahab. He will give you inspiration for term limits and make you grateful you have presidents and not kings. Ahab is remembered for two things. He's remembered for being the most wicked king in Israel's history, and he's remembered for marrying an equally wicked woman. Quite an impressive resume in it. I mean, he's remembered for being the most wicked king in Israel, and he's remembered for marrying a wicked pagan woman. If you start in verse 30 of chapter 16 of 1 Kings, it says, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who went before him. And it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, a Sidonian woman, and he went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who went before him. And so what we see is that Ahab's a bad dude. In the nation of Israel, what Ahab does is he begins to build temples, but not to the living God, not to the true God, but to Baal and the Asherah, two pagan idols, two pagan gods. And so here is the king of Israel set on the throne, the seventh king in the northern kingdom of Israel, and what we find is he led the nation into wicked ways. He's one bad dude. He's one bad dude. In fact, he was so wicked that the nation of Israel would use him as a standard for wickedness. Later on, we read about some different kings in Israel. These are different kings after Ahab. And here's what it says. This king walked in the way of the kings of Israel just as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab became his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. You see, if you want to talk about how wicked you were, you said he was as bad as Ahab and his household. Then later on in 2 Kings chapter 8, a different king, it says he walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then another king, much later on in 2 Kings 21, he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah's father had destroyed and he erected Altus for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. So whenever the nation of Israel, whenever God wanted to refer to low-water marks in Israel's history, they compared their unrepentant, their godless kings to Ahab. He was as bad as Ahab was. Low point in Israel's history was with Ahab, the evil king. So he was the most wicked king as far as leading folks astray in worshiping these other gods. Secondly, he married an equally wicked woman. His wife's name was Jezebel. Most men marry way over their heads. Right? Amen, guys? Amen. Every wise man who has a wife sitting next to him, that's me, man. I'm here way over my head. Amen. Amen, guys? And all the women, they, they, they know that already. We don't have to tell them anything. Well, Ahab did the opposite. Instead of marrying up, he married down. Instead of marrying up, he married down. Now, how many of you guys did that? Don't you dare raise your hand. <laughs> she was a, likewise, she likewise was a wicked woman. She's the kind of woman that may West described her mother should have thrown her away and kept the Stark. That's one bad woman. And she, she was actually a, a, a woman who uh, turned not only her husband's heart away from God, although he didn't need much help, but she turned the nation away as well. Together they brought pagan worship and especially the worship of Baal to its zenith in Israel's history. Quite an impressive resume isn't it. Well, it's into this setting that Abraham speaks. He's a courageous prophet. I'm sorry, that Elijah speaks. Elijah is called to speak into the life of Ahab and Jezebel. He's called to introduce them to the the, 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 the real God, the true God, and to call them to repentance. The background to all this is in chapter 17, verse 1. Elijah the Tishbite. By the way, you know, being a, that's not a great last name. You're Elijah the Tishbite. Anyway... He was a Tishbite, he's one of the settlers of Gilead, and he said, he was sent, he's sent to Ahab. Now, I remind you that the Hebrew word for prophet is Nabim. It means to bubble forth. So the prophet would bubble forth that which God placed within them. So he goes at God's direction to confront, to confront Ahab, this wicked king. And he says, as the Lord God, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Specifically, it's going to be a little bit more than three years. We went through a drought last year in Texas. Actually, it lasted a little bit over a year. We know what it's like to be in drought conditions. Elijah steps in to the throne room of the king and says, I want you to know God has given me a word. The word is this. For the next three years, there's going to be drought in the land. The purpose was to discipline them to draw them back to God. And so God sends discipline upon the king and the queen, upon the nation, so that they might turn to him in the midst of that. And so drought comes, but rather than turning to God, they turned away from God. In fact, if you jump ahead to chapter 18, there's another prophet named Obadiah. He goes to meet Elijah. Elijah disappears for three years. God provides for him. There's drought in the land, and Elijah resurfaces after three years at God's directions. God's direction. And uh, during those three years, bad things happen. Rather than repenting because of the discipline that they are undergoing, they seek revenge. If you look at chapter 18, verse 13, Obadiah says, Has it not been told to, you, told to my master, talking about Elijah, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred prophets of the Lord by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. He says, Obadiah goes to Elijah and says, Where have you been for the last three years? By the way, don't you know what happened? Rather than repenting, they sought revenge against the prophets of God. And they were killing the prophets of God. We saved some, but most of them were killed. So, so Elijah, rather than repenting when the discipline came, Ahab and Jezebel sought revenge. As I was contemplating and thinking through that this week, I was thinking about my over three decades of ministry at TBC And how sometimes we see the hand of God exercised against people within our body or other folks. And we get away from God. But the scriptures tell us in Hebrews 11 that, or Hebrews 12 that God disciplines those that he loves to draw us back to himself. And I'm going to tell you, observing lives for 30 plus years, I sometimes wonder, what does it take for a person to repent? What does it take? I've seen folks go through divorce and become alone and no repentance. I've seen them lose jobs and go broke. No repentance. I've seen parents and kids who won't talk, won't even show up at one of those houses for Christmas and Thanksgiving and Easter. No repentance. I've watched some folks grow up old and lonely. No repentance. I've seen folks depressed and joyless. No repentance. I've seen guilt and shame because of any number of reasons but no repentance. I've seen people arrested go to jail and get out and no repentance. And that's what happened here. Drought is sent into the nation. Ahab and Jezebel, rather than repenting, seek revenge. And I can't help but ask the question, what about you? You go through difficult times. God is wooing you back to himself. Maybe he's even disciplining you so that you, like a wayward child, will come home to the Father. But when that happens, my encouragement to you is to repent and be drawn unto God. To repent and be drawn back to him. Tony Evans, who was one of my prophets at Dallas Seminary, one of his books says, God makes us miserable through conviction to make us joyful through confession. He makes us miserable through conviction. To make us joyful through confession. When you are convicted of sin, the joy comes not from remaining in that sin, but from confessing and getting right with God. Well, Jezebel and Ahab do the opposite as oftentimes we do. So Elijah, the courageous prophet, steps on the scene. So the background to the battle is this drought, and, and for three years, the nation is struggling. For three years, the nation has has, has all types of issues, and so he, God says, Elijah, I want you to go against Ahab. I want you to go and point some things out to him. So Elijah goes to meet Ahab in verse 16 of chapter 18. Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. He sees Elijah in a distance. Verse 17, is that you, you troubler of Israel? It shows you where Ahab's heart is. He says, you're the troubler of Israel. And, I, and Elijah boldly looks at the king who could lop off his head with a word and he says, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have because you've forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you follow the Baals. He said, the problem is not with me. The problem is with you. You have led the nation astray by worshiping these foreign gods. And so Elijah challenges Ahab to bow to the gods. He says, let's prove who the true God is. If Baal is a true God, then we'll follow him. But if Yahweh is a true God, we'll follow after him. The objective of Elijah is very clear. Look at verse 21. Elijah came near to the people and said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people did not answer him with a word. You see, here is the problem in Israel. It's not that they totally rejected the true God, it's that they added Baal to the worship of the true God. So it wasn't that they were not worshiping Yahweh, they were worshiping him, but when you worship him and add all these other gods to it, that's not real worship anyway. And he says, how long are you going to vacillate between the two? How long are you going to follow after these other gods and this God who's just a pagan God and not follow after the real God? Now I'm glad we don't have problems today with getting off the fence. I mean, Elijah's finger points through the eons of time and it looks at us and it says, if God is God, follow him. If God is God, follow him. Quit vacillating. Quit going back and forth. Get off the fence. Quit playing games with God. We call that hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Thursday morning men's Bible study. We're going through the book of Matthew. This week we happen to be in Matthew chapter six. It's when Jesus is uh, the disciples ask him how to pray. And he says, uh, let me let me tell you a few things. First of all, he says, don't be hypocritical in your giving. Don't be hypocritical in your praying. Don't be hypocritical in your fasting. He said, when you give, don't sound the trumpet so everybody sees you giving. When you pray, don't stay in the street corners and pray, but you go, go into your closet and play, pray. When you're giving, he says, don't go to the street corners. Don't, don't go out. Don't, don't, when you're giving, rather, don't blow the trumpet. Don't let everybody... In fact, he says, don't let your right hand, let your left know what it's doing. I told the men we used to have a piano player like that when I came to TBC. Her left didn't know what her right hand was doing years and years ago. He says, don't display these things in public. Because you're a hypocrite. He uses that word three times in Matthew chapter 6. Jot down Matthew 6. Take a look at it. A hypocrite is somebody who wears a mask. That's what the word means. Elijah says, don't be a hypocrite. If God is God, follow after him. Quit vacillating between the two. Let me put that in, in straight terms. A hypocrite is a person who's singing on Sunday and shacking with somebody on Monday. Prays like an angel on Sunday, but curses like a sailor on Monday. Prays on his knees on Sunday, but prays on his neighbors on Monday. Loves the saints on Sundays and gossips about him on Monday. Hugs his wife and kids in church on Sunday, but is cold and hard hearted on Monday. Fellowships on Sunday, but lives like the devil on Monday. It's hypocrisy. If the shoe fits, confess it. Get right before God. If God is God, follow him. Follow him. So Elijah, you know the story. I'm going to go through it real rapidly. Elijah says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a battle of the gods. We're going to have a battle between my God and this God. This is Baal, the Canaanite God. He was a God of fertility, but also the God of rain, fire, and thunder. They've just had a three year drought. They're worshiping the God of rain. Don't you think you'd be a little discouraged? I mean just a little discouraged. And so Elijah says, since the God of rain is not delivered, let's see maybe as the God of fire he might deliver. And so Elijah proposes a test. He says, let's have these gods battle it out and see who the true God is. And as you're aware, the story says we're going to pick two oxen and we're going to butcher the oxen. We're going to place them on the altar and then we're going to cry for our God to bring fire. We're not going to light a match. We're not going to bring fire ourselves. We're going to call upon the gods and the true God will bring fire down from heaven. And so quite interesting in verse 26 of chapter 18, it says, they took the ox that they prepared and they called all from morning until noon. That's from 6 a.m. until noon. At six hours, Baal answers, Baal answers, but there was no voice. No one answered. They leaped about on the altar, and it came about at noon. One of the most sarcastic verses in the Bible is verse 27. If you're writing your Bibles, write sarcasm in the margin next to 1827. Elijah mocked them, and he said, call out with a loud voice. He said, you're not screaming loud enough, because your God, if he's a God, either he's occupied. The Hebrew word for occupied there has to do with gone to the bathroom. He says, your God is relieving himself. Or maybe he's gone aside. Or maybe he's on a journey. Or maybe he's asleep and you need to awaken him, so cry out even louder. louder. So they cried out with a loud voice and they cut themselves because human sacrifice was the ultimate sacrifice to Baal. And so they're screaming out. Can you imagine how disillusioned and discouraged these guys had to be? I mean, they're crying out for the God of fire to bring fire and he doesn't answer. They spent their whole life honoring this God, worshiping this God, giving their life to this God, and their God is silent and quiet and does not do anything. That's what idols are like. In the Psalms it says this, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Those who make them will become like them. You become like the God that you worship. Become like the God you worship. And these Baal worshippers and these Baal priests were like their God. And so what happens? Elijah calls down the God of heaven, brings fire, everything is consumed, the oxen are consumed, even the stones around it are consumed, that's after he's had 12 buckets of water poured up on the altar, he says we're going to have a good old fashioned barbecue, we're going to call from God to to bring fire from heaven, and to show you that he's a true God, we're going to flood this place with water, and so they flood it with water, God sends fire from heaven, and it's all consumed, and the people cry out, the Lord, he is God, God, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And then they chase after the prophets of Baal and they kill them all. And we say, man, this is a great story on the power of God and and, and the omnipotence of God. and, And This is a big God story. When we think, when we have faith like Elijah, it's amazing what God can do. And we recognize and see the power of our God, the sufficiency of our God, the might of our God. And we close our Bibles and go home. I mean, it's a great story about God. It's a big God story. In fact, a number of years ago, about 12 years ago, we did a doctrinal study, much like we did this summer. And when I was teaching theology proper, that's a study of God the Father, I used this text to show many attributes of the Father, to show his power, his might, to show what God can accomplish. And it's a great story about Elijah's faith. If we could close our Bibles and stop right there, it would be great. The problem is the hero that he is in chapter 18, he becomes a zero in chapter 19. I mean, he goes from the peak to the depth of the valley. And in that section that I read when we started the sermon this morning, it says in chapter 19, verse 1, after this tremendous spiritual significance, Ahab told Jezebel what Elijah had done and how these prophets had died and what had taken place. And so what we find is the aftermath of the battle. The aftermath of the battle is that there's pressure from the palace and the pressure comes from the queen, Jezebel, this wicked woman. And she says, may it happen to me if I don't kill you that uh, these gods will destroy me like you destroyed the prophets of Baal. And you would think Elijah, after seeing 450 prophets destroyed, fire called down from heaven, everything consumed, laughing at the priest of Baal before they were destroyed, and this malignancy taking out of Israel, that's what happened, they were all killed to take the malignancy out of Israel. You would think at that time, when Jezebel sent word, I'm coming after you, Elijah would say, come on, woman, come on, you ain't nothing. My God is greater. My God is stronger. My God is able to overcome anything that you can bring at me. Let me give you a warning. After a spiritually significant event in your life, beware. Beware. My brother Larry Woods, who was up here last week, I sent him a text Sunday afternoon. I said, bro, here's a warning. God used you in a great way this week. Be ready. Satan's coming after you. He did great during the week. We talked last night. But when you have a spiritually significant event in your life, somebody's coming after you. He wants to take and pull the props out from under you. And that's what happens to Elijah. Elijah's just had this spiritually significant event. He's seen the power of God on display, as you and I see oftentimes. But instead of of celebrating, he's discouraged, he's depressed, he's disillusioned. He's filled with self-pity. I mean, there's pressure from the palace, and after that pressure from this palace of despair in the desert, look at verse 4. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, sat under a juniper tree, and he said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life. I am not better than my father. He said, God, just kill me. By the way, if you study the prophet Jonah, which we will a little later, it sounds just like Jonah, doesn't it? God, just kill me. Spiritually significant event in Jonah's life, everybody in Nineveh repented from the pauper to the palace, and what does Jonah do? You find him at the end of chapter 4, he's out there in in a pity party saying, God, just kill me and two times in this chapter verse 10 and verse 14 elijah says i'm by myself i alone I, i'm the only one left i'm the only one left and god reminds him you are not the only one left in verse 18 he says "There are 7,000 others in israel who haven't worshiped the baal you're not by yourself and more importantly i am with you in fact i will show you my presence elijah failed miserably you know what god does when we fail He doesn't kick you around like you're some piece of trash. What he does is he sends an angel to minister to his fallen servant. In the midst of despair, God cares. I failed God miserably, you failed God miserably. He's wallowing in self-pity. I mean, he's having a pity party like you've never seen before. Some of you are doing that right now. Look at me, look at my circumstance, me, 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 me. And the problem is when you fix your eyes on me rather than him, you're going to feel that way. So God says he sends an angel. First angel comes about and uh, he feeds them. Look at verse... Five, he lay on a juniper tree. The angel says, Arise and eat. And he looked and there was bread and a jar of water. So he ate and he lay down again. We're going to do what he's due. He lay down again. Second angel came said, Arise and eat. I like it when angels come. They bring food and water for you. So angels are good people. But it's a display of God ministering to his fallen servant. God whispers to him. He takes them to an interesting place. He takes them to Mount Sinai. Look at verse eight. Same place where he had taken Moses. And so you've got this parallel between Moses and Elijah. Verse eight, he takes him to Horeb, which is Sinai. When Moses was at Sinai, God revealed himself in power and might, but this time he speaks to Elijah through a whisper. You drop down to verse fourteen and he said, I've been zealous for the Lord, I alone and left. And God had spoken to him and said, You are not alone. Here's the point. Don't despair when you have a great God who cares. Don't despair. Some of you have gone through desperate things. Some of you are struggling with all kinds of things. You may be like Elijah, disillusioned, desperate, depressed, defeated, and fearful. You've got to get your eyes off your circumstances and onto him. You see, when your eyes are on your circumstances, you will despair. When you fix your eyes on him, when you fix your eyes on him, in the midst of any trial, any event, even after spiritually significant times, even during those times, you've got a father who cares for you. He sent angels to care for him. He himself cares for you. There's a young man in our body. Andrew, you're out there somewhere? Come up and join me. There's a young man in our body who had an opportunity to despair. He went through a very trying time. And in the midst of that, he recognized the sufficiency of God, not that he didn't have a moment or two when despair set in. But would you welcome Andrew Jameson, one of the young men here at TBC. Share a little bit of your story with our brothers and sisters
1: about uh, what happened in your life. Sure, I'd be happy to. City and um, a hold it way close. Close. So four years ago, I was interviewing residency positions in New York City, and had uh, had an interview there. It finished up early, and was fortunate enough to get on standby for an earlier flight home uh, back to Charlotte, North Carolina. And we were um, taking off from LaGuardia, we're climbing up, and was kind of just waiting for the, the captain to put the light on and say, it's OK to, to listen to electronics, and heard a thud, and the plane lurched a little bit. Um, and you hear funny noises all the time on planes. I never thought much of it. Check the flight attendants, and if they're OK, I'm OK, and we just keep going. So I looked at the flight attendants, and they were not OK. You could tell this was not normal. Um, A lady just a little ahead of me said she saw the engine spark. So that's not good. Um, But I even uh, told the lady besides it's okay. There's two engines on a plane for a reason. You know we could make it all the way to Charlotte if we needed to on one engine. And as I said that, there was this this. It's not a noise. It's an absence of noise. And sometimes that's the loudest thing is the absence of noise. And I realize. There weren't any engines. There's no engine noise at all. It's eerie silence on the plane. And about that time, I realized the plane was beginning to descend. We're banking to the left. There's the, the New York City skyline rising taller and taller, and La- LaGuardia just on the other side of that. And it became pretty clear that we're not going back to LaGuardia. There's no way to get back to the airport. And we're in New York City, there's not a whole lot of cornfields uh, to land in. That this is not going to end well. Um, several thoughts crossed my mind, um, kind of funny thoughts in hindsight, but two months prior to that, uh, me and my wife had discussed life insurance and getting life insurance and I had procrastinated on that, and one of the thoughts was I should not have procrastinated about that one. Um, I thought about calling my wife, I knew that she was in clinic, I would get her voicemail, and um, you know should I even leave a voicemail saying that I love her and you know it's okay. Or would that cause more trauma further down the road and be just be something that would haunt her for the rest of her life and that decision on what to do? And then the, the third thought that came to me is, well, I should pray. And um, that probably should have been the first thought. But I asked the lady to uh, the right of me if it's okay uh, to say a prayer. And I hope you're never in that situation. But if you are, you don't have to ask permission on a plane that's about to crash if you can pray. It's okay, I promise. Um, And several people leaned in and uh, we prayed, and I don't remember all the details of it. Um, I know we claimed the sovereignty of God, and the thought uh, we would be saved from this never even occurred to me. That wasn't the the focus of the prayer at all. Uh, About that time, when we finished, the captain came on and said, brace for impact. And if there was ever any doubt about what was about to happen, that was completely cleared up that this was, in fact, what was about to happen. Um, And at that time, that's probably the most amazing thing I've ever experienced. Not probably, I know it is, because I had this peace, and um, it just was amazing. I had complete comfort and peace knowing that God was in control, and he was going to take care of my wife, and you know, as bad as this is right now, in a little bit, I'm going to be in an amazing place, and it's going to be okay. Um, We did hit the water, and almost immediately, ice-cold water came rushing in at my ankles, And by the time the plane stopped, there's the water up to my knees. And I looked to my closest exit. was just a few steps to my back side there. And um, there's a flight attendant up to her chest in water, screaming that we can't get out the back. We can't get out the back. So from this period of time where I had this absolute peace, when I could do nothing about the situation, it turned into this complete terror and fear that now I'm going to drown and that maybe there's something I can do. I can bust a window out or... I can hold my breath long enough to swim to an exit. All ridiculous ideas in hindsight. Um, That was terrifying. The water never rose any higher. It stayed right there at my knees. As you all know, we all exited the plane, and everyone was safe. Um, But looking back at that, you know, I could spend 15, 20 minutes explaining how we shouldn't have survived, how, you know, we didn't take on fuel while we were in New York City, and that kept... um, half the fuel tanks full of air and allowed us to float on the wings. Um, How you couldn't have picked a better pilot that God put in the cockpit that day for that situation. Uh, How if it had been two days later, the Hudson River would be full of ice and that wouldn't have happened. And just like Gary was saying, obviously the God of all weather. Just so many things I could go on and on and on about. But the conclusion that I drew at the end of it was that Even in that most desperate situation, God is in control. He's sovereign, and he's good, and he loves his children. And for me, when I can't do anything, if I trust in him, it's so much sweeter and so much more peace than that. And when I try to do it on my own, it's really terrifying. But either way, God was with me and in control. Amen.
0: That would have been that would have been an opportunity to despair. Would you agree? An opportunity to despair. But you've got a God who cares. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Worship team, would you guys come up? He's mightier than any. You eventually made that phone call back to Jennifer, didn't you? I did. did. Tell that story to.
1: So when we when I got on the raft, I still had my phone with me. So I. Um, Made a quick phone call back to her just to nip it in the bud. Knew this was going to make news and didn't want her to be concerned about it. So uh, the voicemail left on her, on her phone, I wish I still had it, said, Hey babe, plane just crashed. I'm okay. I'm in the river right now. I'll call you when I get a chance. If, if it ever happens again, Jennifer has told me that I'm supposed to say I'm in a raft in the river, not just <laughs> in the river. But,
0: Thank you, brother. I've heard Andrew tell that story a couple of times. And you know, we all go through times when we can despair. We become discouraged, defeated, disillusioned, depressed. But I want you to remember you've got a God who cares every step of the way. In Elijah's battle, says our God is greater. Greater than any Baal greater than the other God. So I want us to conclude our service by standing and singing that song to you.